Scripture tonight is from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. <clears throat> Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and you suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Thanks be to God. Well, we've been going through the uh, letter of First Peter, and one of the things that we've seen is that Peter wrote his letter to give guidance to uh, Christians that were beginning to suffer some persecution. And the issue seemed to be that the culture was becoming suspicious of the church and starting to worry that the church was uh, destabilizing the culture, was not a good influence, or was a force for evil and not good in the Roman society. And one of the things that uh, we've been reflecting on is that while there are many differences between the first century culture and our own, uh, there is this similarity that a lot of our neighbors are suspicious of the church. They wonder if the church actually is helpful, if it's actually a good thing, uh, if it's actually a, a cause for good or for evil. And one of the reasons why they wonder this is because there are some scriptures that Christians have used over the centuries uh, in twisted ways. And the text that Amelia just read that tells slaves to submit to all masters, including unjust ones, and the Greek word is uh, the word we get scoliosis from. It means bent or perverse or uh, wicked. This text that commands slaves to submit to wicked masters uh, became the anchor of a whole doctrine of, of racism that was especially employed in the South to support chattel slavery. And I just wanted to take a moment to talk about that. Um, this passage was linked to Genesis chapter 9, where Noah has fallen uh, drunk after the flood. He wakes up, he's uncovered, and his son Ham sees him, tells his brothers Japheth and Shem. And Noah is upset and pronounces a curse on Canaan. And he says, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. And uh, racist theologians argued that Japheth became the father of white people, Shem the father of Semitic people, and Ham the father of black people. And thus God had decreed that all black people uh, by nature 
should be the slaves of other peoples. Here's how one theologian put it in 1853. The servitude of the race of Ham is necessary to the truth of God himself, as by it is fulfilled one of the oldest decrees of Scripture, namely that of Noah, which placed the race as servants under other races. Well, there are a lot of problems about finding a curse on all black people in Genesis 9. We won't go into all of them tonight. For starters, it's, it's not possible to exactly know what these Hebrew names mean. The Hebrew word for ham can also be translated as warm or father-in-law. Notice that Noah curses Canaan and not Ham. Canaan himself was uh, uh, ethnically similar to the Israelites. They looked nothing like black people, so the curse has nothing to do with black Africa. And you could also argue that the curse was fulfilled when the Israelites had victory over the Canaanites living in the Promised Land. But we're still left with this instruction of Peter telling slaves to submit to cruel masters. Slaves, doulos, servants, be subject, submit to... Your masters, with all respect, fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust, to the perverse, to the twisted, or to the cruel. Now, this text made perfect sense to Christians uh, over the centuries who believed that God had cursed one of the races. It seemed to fit together very naturally. Uh, And as odd as that sounds today, the belief that some people were born to serve other people was commonly held by many, if not most, Christians 150 years ago. And in our city, if you would have been listening to sermons about 150 years ago, you would have noticed that this was a topic of great debate. The reason why we have a first Presbyterian church and a second Presbyterian church is because the congregations differed on their interpretation of 1 Peter 3 and whether or not uh, slavery was ordained in the Bible. And if you could go into the library of one of the pastors in town, remember Knoxville was union, but there was a great controversy in our city at the time, and the city was split, and the pulpits were split. Matter of fact, on the Battle of Fort Sanders, uh, the Sunday after the battle, Uh, the the pro-union congregations got out of worship and went and had a prayer service of praise on the battle site, and the Confederate churches went home. So you can imagine the kind of tension. And as Mark pointed out in his class on Monday night, uh, these things don't just disappear. They kind of go into the soil, and they keep coming back. And I think we saw it come back yesterday. So if you could go into the the study of a a pro-slavery pastor... Um, you might find uh, this book. It was called The African Trade for Negro Slaves, shown to be consistent with principles of humanity and with the laws of revealed religion by uh, the Reverend Thomas Thompson. And he had a simple argument. He said, open the Bible, read it, and believe it. He said, if you take the Bible seriously, you'll believe in slavery. And he primarily dwelled on Leviticus 25.45, You may buy the strangers who live with you, and they may be your property. Now, on his desk, you might find the copy of a popular magazine of the time, The Christian Revelator. And in 1844, the magazine had a lengthy and fiery debate between Reverend Richard Fuller of Beaufort, South Carolina, and Francis Whalen, president of the Baptist Brown University in Rhode Island. 
Fuller argued that to deny slavery was to deny the inspiration of Scripture. Wayland argued that Scripture itself points to the equality of all peoples. And again, I want you to see this wasn't just something that a few people were arguing about. Christians were arguing about this all over the place. And one of the places you see this is in Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin. And in one chapter, passengers on a steamboat carrying slaves down the Ohio River fire Bible verses back and forth at each other like cannonballs. I'll read a paragraph. It's undoubtedly the intention of providence that the African race should be servants, said a grave-looking gentleman in black, a clergyman seated by the cabin door. Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be. The scripture says it. A tall, slender young man with a face expressive of great feeling and intelligence here broke in and repeated the words, All things whatsoever you would do that men should do unto you, do ye even so unto them. Well, 150 years later, nearly everyone accepts that God does not condone slavery. But I wanted to go over this history, uh, for one, just to show that sometimes studying the Bible is hard that to try to figure out what it meant then and build an interpretive bridge to what it means today takes some work and some prayer. It's not always self-evident. Now, Peter's teaching is simple and clear. He makes four points. Slaves are to submit. Again, to order under. You could translate it as obey, to come under the authority of. uh, Even cruel or wicked or perverse masters. That's his first point. And then he says, for this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. He says that in a situation like this, when you hold up under abuse in an honorable way, there's a way in which you're connected to the grace and favor of God. And then he says, for what credit is it if when you sin, you're beaten for it and you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And this is really the heart of his argument. He says that as you submit to this cruel and unjust master, you're following the example of our Lord Christ, who did the same. And you're bearing witness to his life in you when you endure in a gracious and humble way like Christ did. And then he goes on to talk about that way. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Then at the end, he tries to encourage them by saying that once they've entrusted himself to the one who judges justly, they'll be cared for by the shepherd and overseer of their souls. Don't be discouraged. Submit to the wicked master. Follow the example of Christ. Trust your soul to the good shepherd. And that's how you get through this. Now, how would Peter's audience have heard this instruction? Okay, we're going to try to build this bridge, right? Um, And it's okay if you really are struggling at this point. Uh, It's good if you're still awake at this point with the the heat in the room. But it's okay to kind of go, whoa, that's in the Bible. Didn't know that. 
Um, how do we build this bridge from the first century to ours? Well, about one-third of the people in the Roman Empire were, were slaves, as many as uh, 60 million people. Some became slave in wars, some by violating certain laws, some were sold into slavery by poor parents, most were born into slavery. But the point is that the entire labor supply of the Roman Empire was built on slavery. And this was easy to understand. No one questioned it. Even the slaves didn't question it. When the slaves could purchase their own freedom, they bought slaves. Nobody was talking about, well, this is terrible. Let's do it a different way. This was just the way they thought it was done. And it made sense because they had this belief that some people ought to be ruled by others and that they actually needed to be ruled by others. So why, at this point, doesn't Peter tell the slaves to revolt? Why doesn't he give them a Martin Luther King speech? Uh, why, why doesn't he challenge this horrible social evil? Well, for starters, it, it, it wouldn't have occurred to him. Um, nobody questioned this. Uh, nobody tried to organize society in another way. To call for the abolition of slavery would have been to call for widespread slave revolt and the death of pretty much... Anybody that tried it. So Peter wasn't uh, in a position to overturn the social structures of his day. He wasn't living in a modern democracy where people of all classes could protest without violent suppression. He was a pastor. He was a missionary. And he was out in the world trying to start wherever he could by spreading the gospel, encouraging Christians to live within the society they were in in a different way. So you might think of it like this. Let's say that somehow you're able to begin a correspondence with a prisoner in a North Korean prison, and he's in solitary confinement, let's say somehow you're emailing him, he has guards around him, he has barbed wire around him, his guards are cruel, they beat him daily, over time he becomes a believer. How do you encourage this believer in the North Korean prison? Do you write him long tracks condemning the North Korean government? Would that be helpful? Do you send him the soundtrack of Hamilton? And talk about the glories of democracy. No, that wouldn't be helpful. Do you tell him that he should step out, follow the great liberator, and overthrow the North Korean government? No, he can't. What do you do? You say, be like Christ. Follow his example. Suffer graciously. Be an example and a witness in that prison cell of joy, humility, endurance, perseverance. And trust yourself to the good shepherd. Because that's about all he can do. Well, that's what Peter's doing in this passage. He knows he can't overturn slavery, so he instructs his readers on how to live under an unjust system. I want to take a moment, and I know tonight is a little bit more of a lecture than a, than a sermon, but I felt like we needed to do this. Uh, why did Christians come to the point where they saw slavery as a wicked system and no longer endorsed it from the Bible? Well, when I took Dr. Roskop's hermeneutics course in the fall of 1984 in a room that was hotter than this in Los Angeles in August at 2 o'clock after lunch, Talk about fighting sleep. Um, we learned seven principles for interpreting the Bible, and uh, one of them was Scripture interprets Scripture. 
Scripture interprets Scripture means that you can't just pull out a text and say this is what it means. You have to read that text in light of everything else that the Bible says about a subject. Scripture must be interpreted by other scriptures. So, let's back up for just a second. Let's go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve are created in the Garden as equals, Genesis 1:27. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. So they're created as equals. They both bear the image of God. Sin comes in, the first couple sins. What happens as a result of sin? Genesis 3:16. Your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. What has happened? Because sin has entered the world, now one person is driven to dominate another person. One person is to rule over another person. You have introduced into the world this idea that this person is created to serve that person. And when you think of the history of the human race, This is pretty much what it's all about. This person over that person. This person over that person. And it's still in the world today. Matter of fact, I I think you can see it in kindergarten, right? I mean, I remember in elementary school, you could quickly tell who was on top. It wasn't me, but you could tell. Wherever you go, you go to the gym, you know who's on top. You go to the pool with me in the morning, you can tell. I mean, it's just the way human beings work. Jesus, however creates a new community in which everyone is equal. He forms a community from different social castes and classes. He invites women to follow him, which no rabbi would have done. There's two passages that I want want to show you, and then we are going to get to application tonight. I'll try to go quickly here. Acts 2, 15 to 21. What I'm trying to show you is that the broader teaching of Scripture is overturning the curse. And in the new community, everyone is equal. The Holy Spirit poured out on the church, Acts 2.15. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Peter says, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I'll pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Every human being equally receives the Spirit of God on your sons and your daughters. They'll prophesy, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream visions, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I'll pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. This was a radical teaching. The new community was to be one in which men and women, older and younger, different races were all equal at the cross. And then the other text, and I could read many more, but in the interest of time, I won't. Galatians 3, 26 to 29, is another text where Paul sketches out this vision. And he says, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, we have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. So the broader trajectory of Scripture, the great healing work that God is doing in all of history is that he is overturning the curse. He is overturning the fall. He is moving into a world that's all about over-under, 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 oppress, rule, dominate, crush. 
And he is saying, I'm breaking in with a new kingdom where everyone is equal. Isn't that beautiful? Now he's doing it in a world that is so hierarchical and stratified that he can introduce that like a bomb. But it will take hundreds of years for the church to work it out in terms of a doctrine of slavery. Now, now I think we can finish building our interpretive bridge. Here's the core principle from this passage that we can apply today. Obviously, it does not endorse slavery. But it is a powerful text about working under an unjust boss. It is a powerful text. Remember, slaves were the labor force. So our application is, this is a passage about working in a cruel or wicked organization. Or as uh, one person told me that they once worked in a toxic work environment with a deep culture of injustice. How do you flourish for Christ in an environment like that? Someone else told me a story about working for a boss who continually put them in impossible situations and made them look bad. Another person said they worked in a broken, frustrating system. So what this principle means to us today, I think, is it's talking about a work situation that you cannot change. And I know we live in America. Thankfully, there's opportunity to change, and sometimes you can change. But let's be honest, too. Sometimes you can't. Sometimes you're stuck. Sometimes you can't get out of that environment. So, so what I want to ask you to think about, if you're in that situation, or if you have someone you love that's in that situation, is what does it look like to live and suffer as Christ lived in a toxic work environment where the person you work for or the culture you work in is destroying your soul and God has not let you out? What does that look like? It's hard, isn't it? It's so hard. A friend of mine was talking about a struggle she had as a teacher. The school system was going through a hard time. It's a challenging time in our country for education. And she was saying that every time she left her classroom and would go to the, to the water cooler or the break room, there was a gossip circle. There was just this negativity, this black wave that would just kind of pour out any time she'd get together. And she said one of the greatest challenges for her was figuring out how to be present in that environment without letting it destroy your soul and by witnessing to the grace and the beauty of God. But sometimes that's what you have to do. You're the one who does not complain. You're the one who's not cynical. You're the one that has hope. You're the one that has faith. You're the one that doesn't joke about the bad boss. It's so hard to do this well. But think of the witness that you and I can have if in those kind of situations we can entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly 
and be a witness of grace, humility, gentleness, endurance. We can be like the character in Hacksaw Ridge, if you, if you saw that great movie, where uh, he did not believe in bearing arms in war, and so he enrolls in, in war, and he's cruelly treated by everyone in his unit because he won't shoot a gun, and they humiliate him and do everything they can to, to break him. But then on the battlefield, uh, without a gun, serving as a medic, with no way to protect himself, he's the bravest man in the unit running out to, to, to care for his company, and in the end, he won their respect. So that, I think, is what this passage means to us today is that when you are in a work environment that is toxic and unfair and abusive, that cuts against your ethics, that violates everything you stand for, and God won't let you quit. Sometimes you need to quit, but God won't let you quit. You endure and you witness for Christ. Let's pray.